So last week we looked at how God is extraordinary, how he's so much greater than anything we can imagine or think of or dream up or his pictures. Uh, I laughed this morning. Anybody this morning when Doug was preaching, he talked about how God is not a vending machine. Anybody remember him saying that? Were y'all paying attention when Doug preached this morning? He said it because it made me laugh because last week we had pictures. I did remember I did some AI generated pictures of who God is, and one of them was God as a as a um, vending machine. And I had this weird AI picture of God as a vending machine. You weren't here, Bianca, so you missed all those. Yeah, and you passed. Way to go, way to go, Bianca. She can finally work. All right, but we all take pictures of ourselves, and you know we, we like to take pictures of selfies or uh, of things that we like, food that we're eating, you know, fun times with friends. And we take these pictures, uh, but but not so long ago, the only way to have a copy of what maybe you look like was to sit down for a portrait and take a long time to be painted. Right? You know, these painters they were like Renaissance celebrities. People loved them. And having your portrait painted was kind of a, a flex of epic proportions back in the Renaissance because it cost a lot of money, a lot of time. And one of the most famous portraits ever was commissioned by Francesco Gioconda. I'm pretty sure I'm butchering the names here. Uh, and the portrait was of his wife. Her name was Lisa del Giocondo. Anybody know what, what painting I'm talking about? Mona Lisa. I said the name Lisa. Mona Lisa, one of the fam most famous portraits sitting in the Louvre. Has anybody ever seen it before in person? I've seen pictures of people trying to get to it, and they're like 40 yards away, and it's like this tall. They can't see it, but whatever. People will like it. So the Mona Lisa was painted 500 years ago. In uh, 1665, Dutch artist Johan Vermeer created his most well-known work of art, a girl with a pearl earring. Anybody ever seen this portrait before? Um, we don't know exactly who this painting was of, uh, which kind of lends, you know, to that air of mystery around this painting, or this portrait was. Then he had a, a popular artist, Henry Matisse, who painted a portrait of his wife, uh, Amelie, and it's better known by the name of Woman with a Hat. What a beautiful painting. It looks just like her. Yeah, I mean, that's when I picture this woman. This is, I don't know, that's weird, right? That's, that's I mean, it's cool looking, but, you know, it's not quite a picture picture, but whatever. That's, that's fine. And the last one, uh, another popular one that you may have seen before, it was artist Grant Wood. He painted his younger sister and his dentist in this, in this photo. Um, and this is, this is what it is, American Gothic. Anybody ever seen this one? It's actually the guy's sister and then the dentist and like the family knew. And he's like, I kind of want to see what this, who would live in front of this house and this kind of a thing. And he got these people together and uh, painted this photo. I saw a picture I mean, this was this was like in the 1900s, um, and so like they they were still living like 40 years ago, and so there's a picture of them two together as they got older. Um, but you know, whatever. But back in the day, the portraits weren't necessarily meant to be a a perfect capture of of someone's features, right? Painters weren't trying to get exact copies of Lisa's nose or to fully encompass the color of you know Emilie Matisse's eyes because it was a weird looking painting, anyways. And instead, portraits were meant to tell a story about who that person was. And they were meant to say something about who, who she was to kind of offer a sense of their presence that you can kind of pick, pick up a little bit from the painting. So the way the subject stood or the way they sat, the clothes they wore, the props maybe they included around them, uh, how they placed their hands, where they were looking, it all served to tell some sort of story 
to understand who this person was without the benefit of, of words, right? You know, maybe convey what kind of job they had or their social status. But the painting tells a story that words kind of express, and it represents the actual person. And in the same way, Jesus, he is a representation of God to humanity. When there was no way that we could begin to process the extraordinary mystery of God that we looked at last week, he gave us Jesus. And as believers, we hold to the idea that in Jesus, God communicated the fullness of himself and the fullness of his identity within Jesus. Jesus came down to our level as, as humans. Philippians 2 says he left heaven and came and took the form of a servant to be made in the image of, of like a man, right? He came down to our level and gave us a portrait of God in a way that we could somewhat more understand than this big picture of we don't have a clue kind of who God is. So he gave us in this Jesus so we could somewhat understand him a little bit better. In other words, while Jesus shows us that God is extraordinary, God is also different than we think. So I kind of want to unpack that. Hopefully you're, you should be in, the, in John chapter uh, 14. John 14, we're going to be starting in verse 1 in just a moment. We um, looked at one of the verses actually this morning that Doug preached on. But the Gospel of John, it's one of my favorite books. If you've never read through the Bible, I encourage you to pick up the Gospel of John. It's a great way to get started. It's full of deep theological truths. It's about Jesus. It's about, you know, it's one of the Gospels tells his life story from a little bit different perspective than maybe the other three Gospels. It's a great book to get started on, on your reading uh, of Scripture. And so John reveals how Jesus was God dwelling among us in the flesh, right? That's John 1.14. That's the word Emmanuel. We sing that at Christmas. We say at Christmas, that means God with us, God in the flesh. And so John knows this better than anyone else, right? He was one of Jesus' disciples, as well as one of his closest friends, Right? If you read the, the Gospel of John, if you ever read it and it says the disciple who, whom Jesus loved, John is writing about himself because he is very cocky. Right? I would do the same thing. Right? Like, Jesus loves me. I'm his favorite. That's kind of what John was doing. But he was, he was one of the three favorites, if you will. You have Peter, James, and John. And so they, they, they were kind of his closest inner circle of the three guys. And so he, they, Jesus, I mean, John knew Jesus very well. But John also illustrates how the people around Jesus kind of often miss the truth that Jesus is God in the ordinary. You know, most people that day completely miss the reality that Jesus was the Messiah that God had promised to send to deliver his people. So throughout the Gospel of John, it's a really cool picture to see this, there are seven signs that, that Jesus performed here and seven um, I am statements and all these things to help kind of show the Jewish people, that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, the, the, the anointed one from God that was sent promised so long ago. And so it's really cool to see how all these things happen, all these things working out where it's like, this is the Messiah. You guys are completely missing him. And it's, it's just cool to kind of see that woven in throughout, throughout the Gospel of John. And so these people missed who Jesus truly was. You know, people, they expected the Messiah to be a conquering political and military hero who would deliver Israel from the tyranny of Rome. They thought when the Messiah was going to come, that he was going to come and just wipe out the Roman oppressors. Like he was going to come in there with like a sword and just ready to beat some people up or something. I don't know. But they thought he was going to come in and wipe people out. And then he would kind of set up the, the, the rule, the Messianic kingdom in they expect him to come from within the temple system, so like a priest within the temple system or a Levite. Uh, people expect the Messiah to be powerful and to be wealthy, to be in, from an influential family, 
and the Jewish people expected to see someone who kind of fit their definition of somebody or somebody extraordinary. That's kind of who they thought the Messiah was going to be. But Jesus beautifully came outside of those expectations. He was so different than anything they had imagined. You know, he, he's from humble surroundings and, and parentage. He wasn't born into the lap of luxury. He was born in a smelly cave in the hill. It's with animal food and poop everywhere, right? It's not great conditions. He didn't come from within the formal established religious channels. He didn't come from the Pharisees or the Sadducees. He didn't come from those people. And typically, he always spoke out against those people, right? He didn't come from that, that area. He didn't seem to be concerned also with overthrowing the Romans militarily. And so he was completely different than anything they expected the Messiah to be. Like just before this, in the, in the time between the Old and New Testaments, there's a story of a guy named Judas Maccabeus. Anybody ever heard of that story? He was a, he was a man who came. His name actually means the hammer. Like thinks of that like the guy in Houston who does like practices law, the hammer, whatever. Um, his name was the hammer. He came and he was, him and his brothers led a revolt against the Romans and started to overthrow them. And people were believing him to be the Messiah because again, his family came from the priesthood. Uh, he, uh, he came to overthrow the, the Romans with power and with fighting and things. And so they kind of let people believe that he was going to be the Messiah. Uh, he did some pretty cool things. This is the story where we get the story of Hanukkah comes from the story of Judas Maccabeus there in, the, in between these two, you know, testaments. And so several people kind of rose up like that, like, this is the Messiah. This is who we've been waiting for. Because this is, they, they fit their mold of who the Messiah was to be, but Jesus did not. He was completely different than anything they expected him to be. But still, Jesus developed a following because of his compelling teaching, right? And, and it's, he did some pretty cool things. And so people are like, I want to follow this guy. He doesn't teach like the others teach. That's what the scripture tells us. He did some pretty cool signs. Hey, he keeps me, my belly filled with food, right? They see all these miracles. But even those followers, they still even expected more of who Jesus was. So we discover this in today's passage, which took place in the final week of Jesus' ministry. So this is the last part. This is like the last bit uh, of the life of Jesus, the last week. John 13, you have Jesus there with his disciples in the upper room. They have their Passover. He washes their feet. says, hey, you need to be a servant. And he's telling them this before he starts walking, leaves the city and goes out. So they kind of walk through, down through the Jezreel Valley up to the, to the um, Mount of Olives in, in chapters 15 and, and 16. But here, so he's still there with them. And he's like, hey, I'm about to leave. I'm about to be gone. It's going to get ugly. Um, so they're, they're there in the upper room celebrating the Passover meal. Um, and they began to tell him he's leaving them. So as he prepared them for his death, he entered into a conversation with Philip that showed even the disciples. Those 12 who followed him more closely than anybody else could not believe how ordinary Jesus was. So look there in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That there I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. 
And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, you stupid idiot, and you still do not know me? Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works, miracles themselves. So Jesus opened this passage by telling his disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. This is a common verse people read at funerals. I mean, it's, it's a good thing to, to be told, right? You're grieving something, and you're like, don't let your hearts be troubled. This is how he just starts this passage. But the truth is, their hearts must have been very troubled, otherwise he probably wouldn't have said it, right? But how could they not be? They had, they had one that left the house and home with them. They had, they had to follow in Jesus, right? And they followed these things, and one left to go away. Someone in their group was a traitor. Another was about to cowardly deny Jesus. This is not what they had signed up for three years ago. And it was less than they expected from their time with Jesus. They, maybe they thought, there's one guy named Simon, Simon the Zealot. The Zealot was someone who wanted to overthrow the Romans with physical force. Like that was his thing. They would keep daggers hidden their, like in their shirts that they could pull out and like assassinate people really quickly in a crowd and not get seen. This is who, this is one of the disciples, Simon is, this is what he did. This is, well, not he did, but well, maybe, who knows. This is like what their group thinking was like. And so you can kind of imagine maybe him was like, this is not how I expected this guy to be like. I'm, you know, maybe he thought, I want to kill some people for something. I want to get rid of the Romans. This is not who Jesus was, right? So in your small groups here at your table real quick, there's a couple questions I want you guys to discuss. You know, these disciples had trouble with Jesus' words in verses 1 through 4. So many leave your Bible open to see those words. If you were a disciple, do you think that you would have had the same trouble? Why or why not? So discuss that real quick in the group. This is where you talk out loud. Oh, okay. If you need to reread verses 1 through 4, maybe do that. Thank you. 
Give you guys about 30 seconds. So we have the story of these verses one through four. He's telling about Ham leaving, I'm about to go, about to go away. And then he had this strange statement that you know the way to where I'm going. You know. And Thomas was blunt. If anything, if you read through scriptures, Thomas just said it. He's like, um, no, I don't have a clue, sir. Uh, where are you going? I don't have a clue. You haven't told me that. How can we know the way? You haven't told me. I have no clue. Right? That's that makes sense. And then Jesus made. The extraordinary statement, one of the seven I am statements of Jesus in John, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So in that one statement, Jesus revealed both the ultimate destination, which is God the Father, and then he also revealed the way to get there, which was himself. So the destination is God the Father, eternal life with God, and the way to do that is through Jesus and Jesus alone. Nothing else, no other religion. Nothing else can get you to God the Father except Jesus. Period. That's it. And so this statement gave the disciples an idea about who God is and how to get to him. But Philip was not willing to let go of kind of that expectation of what the Messiah should be. So we kind of sense his longing for a powerful sign from Jesus as he said, Lord, show us the Father and, and, and that'll be enough. Like he still wants more signs, more things to, like Show us more, right? That's kind of what he's wanting. You know, he was like looking for like a burning bush or a soaked fleece or a pillar of fire or something else extraordinary more than he's already seen to assure him that Jesus was really connected to the Father. He's, by this time, he'd already performed a ton of miracles. Remember, this is the last week of his life. That's it. So he's, he's seen three plus years of Jesus doing things. And so he's like, show me more. He still can't believe this was not necessarily a bad thing to ask for. You know, Gideon and Moses, among others, asked God for similar extraordinary signs, and they received those signs. But Philip had something that Gideon and Moses and others didn't. They had God in the flesh. You know, in Jesus, God was closer than Philip thought, than Philip knew. But Jesus, because Jesus was underdressed in a way, Philip missed it. Philip was looking for the extraordinary so God was less than his expectation when he came in the man of Jesus. And Philip's faulty expectations caused him to miss Jesus in the order. Remember, when I'm saying he's ordinary, I mean he's, he's not what they were expecting. That's what I mean. And so in your groups, another question discuss what was Philip asking for in verses 7 through 8? 
And why do you think Philip asked for this? So there you go. Talk about it. Are you answer the question? Are you are? Are you answering the question? Coop? We can you don't need Tate to answer the question. Peter, are you asking these kids these questions? Are you asking these kids these questions? What's their answer? What's your answer? What are you looking for? That I do not know, but I do know that at this point in the story, he is so confused. So confused. Yeah. What about you, older people over here? Of what? I'm enough, right? Yeah. Thanks, Debbie. Appreciate that. I don't get how he does that. This whole table over here. All right, I want you guys to think of a time when you've been underdressed. Maybe it was for a wedding uh, or prom or a funeral. Uh, maybe your grandmother made you eat at the country club or, you know, you had to throw on like your weird sports coat over like your basketball jersey or something. I don't know. 
Have you guys ever been underdressed? Anybody ever been somewhere and been underdressed in your life? Like three or four of you? It's an awkward feeling, right? You walk into a party, everyone else is like wearing a coat and tie or a fancy dress, and you're just like in jeans and a t-shirt. It's hard in these moments to feel like you fit in and, and you feel like you're disappointing everybody. No matter how funny you are or how attractive you are or how personable you are, you know that people at this party will only remember you as a person who wore jeans to the nice party. So there's a girl I dated in high school. Uh, she came from a wealthy family whose grandparents were wealthy. They, old Miller had been around for a long time. I got off work on Saturday night. I got off work at Lids. I went to her house. I think I probably did the open like 3 o'clock shift. Went to her house like I normally did and hung out. And I get there, and she's, uh, she's there with her parents. And they're like, hey, um, we're going to dinner tonight. Uh, but you, you can't wear this because I was wearing like my khakis and like my hat world t-shirt, right? You can't wear that. And I'm like, okay, so like we're gonna go take you to the Dillard's. We're gonna get you a suit. I'm like, okay, what kind of dinner is this? And so we go to Dillard's. I try on this. There's a navy blue suit. Had like a light blue shirt. Had a blue and red tie. Huh? I looked really good, but whatever. And so I'm there, and I'm getting the suit on. They, I mean, like, they buy everything, the, the shoes, the socks, everything. I go back to their house. I get changed and dressed, and they still be, are kind of, you know, not really giving me a whole lot. Because I'm like, this is a lot for a dinner, right? You don't typically wear a suit just to dinner. And they're like, okay, we're going to go to my, this is my, my girlfriend's thing. Like, I'm gonna, we're going to go to my, my grandparents' house for dinner, and there's some people going to meet us there for dinner. Okay, sure. Still, I don't, I don't get this whole outfit thing, whatever. So we get in the car, we go there, and they're like, still not giving me any information. Okay, when you get there, just, just be cool, play it natural. Um, the normal people just enjoy this meal. Right on. So we get to their house, and I walk in, and I had dinner with President George H.W. Bush and his wife, Barbara. Seriously, not even joking. It was crazy. And so, I get, so yeah, so I go to this and I have a nice dinner. They're nice people. Um, and had dinner with former president. At this time, this was 2001, um, and uh, George W. had been voted in as president. And I don't know if I remember like what time of year it was. So he's either about to become president, more than likely, he already was the president because his. Inaugurated in January, so more likely he was already president. So yeah, needless to say, if I were to show up at this dinner with President and First Lady wearing my khaki shorts and like my Hat World t-shirt and a hat, I would have been incredibly underdressed, right? If it wasn't for them taking me to Dillard's and buying this, it was, again, this is one of the craziest dinners of my life. It's a weird story. As Leah calls it, it's one of my dad lore stories. It's just crazy. I have this is, this is, yeah, it's weird. I don't know. Super underdressed. Um, but yeah, so there we go. That's so it's a crazy story. But in today's passage, we discover that Jesus was underdressed, right? The, what I mean by that is the people around him had certain expectations of what he would look like and how he would act. But Jesus came in and a whole lot less than those expectations and nothing close to what they had envisioned in their minds of who the Messiah was to be. So in Jesus' response to Philip, we see the extraordinary God also wants us to find him in the ordinary. And Jesus says, don't you recognize me, Philip? You 
idiot, right? That's almost what you did. Of course, Jesus would say that, but you can almost think of like, hey, you've seen me for three years. You've seen what I could do. Are have you been so blind? You know, I know everything about you. I've studied you. You know, I, all these things. Um, you know, he says, like, I, I know your names. What he said, and baptized to call someone by name, it, it was means just a way of saying that, hey, I know you. And so I, I know who you are. You know, how's that, that walking with me for three years, you haven't noticed the same thing about me, right? And like Philip, we love to and long to see God in the extraordinary. We love to see God being bigger than we can imagine, which is fantastic. We want the God who measures the heavens with his hands to show up next to us and be on our side. And of course, this is who God is, right? But God is also the ordinary. In divine paradox that we don't understand, God chooses to be underdressed so that he can be near to us. You know, God is closer than you and I think. And we can make, but we often make the same mistake that Philip did and we kind of overlook him because often God is less than our, ex, our expectation of who God is. So real quick in your group, how does Jesus reveal that God is ordinary? How does Jesus reveal that God is ordinary? Talk about it.
So God is closer than, than you think because God is revealed through the man Jesus, right? It is huge that Jesus is God in human flesh. In Jesus, we see how God cares about every ordinary problems in our lives and in our world. He, he walked through these. He experienced what it was like to be human. He had, he had hunger pains. He, he had, you know, he, he had emotions like you and I. He wept when his friends died. He, he had all these things. He was, he was fully man, just like you and I. I said, Places him more in that category of ordinary. You know, in Jesus, we see how God cares about every ordinary person, regardless of their status and, and prowess, right? Jesus, more often than not, ministered to people who were not extraordinary in their society. That's who he chose to get involved with, right? Now, I've said this several times before in here. You're never more like Jesus than when you're meeting the needs of the lonely and the hurting. Because that's who Jesus went after. You know, so he went after just ordinary people. And, you know, we see that God is ordinary enough to reach down into our ordinary lives and to make a difference. And God is less than we expect. And what I mean is that he's more involved and he's more concerned than we could ever have imagined a God could be. So again, another question for your group. How have you discovered that God is closer than what you once thought? How have you discovered that God is closer than you once thought? thought. I feel like just keep like growing up. I've kind of realized how like Christianity is not as much of a religion as it is like a relationship. It's not like well, it's so, so if that being the church, I feel like maybe I'm helping you dig deeper into that to like be able to explain. Okay, so like, so I, I grew up in church, right? And so I always knew about God, but I never, there wasn't like a definite time where I did. Okay, I believe in gosh, I was raised that way. But so I kind of realized that it's a relationship instead of just. So you would say that you have experienced that you know what person just is a big guy this big guy this guy. I'm not is that the question? Yeah. Well you you kinda of grew up in it too. Yeah, I was like, I'd say up until I, a little after I moved to Midland, that's finally I actually really realized it was more about relationship and like, that's like roles and command. Like once I realized that more, I was able to like go closer. 
As you guys start to get older and you kind of have these experiences, you're going to start to begin to realize how much God is closer than you once thought. Especially when you, you have times of heartache. When my dad passed, that was a pretty hard day. Um, and so through those times of heartache, we know that, that walking alongside me through, through that, God is there with me. He, he loves me in the ordinary and the extraordinary. And he's just he's there to walk alongside to to comfort me because he is in fact a God of compassion, right? And so he's closer than I once thought because he, you know you have this guy who created the universe. Why would he want anything to do with me? I am insignificant. I am nothing special. I bring nothing to the table when it comes to my relationship to, to God and me. I bring nothing to the table. Yet he still's like I still choose you. I still want to have that relationship with you, and I still care for you. And that's, that's gotten me through a lot of junk in my life. Does anybody ever remember the TV show, The Mythbusters? Yes. I loved Mythbusters. I love Mythbusters. If you don't know what it is, it's just a group of special effects artists that turned scientists who kind of did experiments to see whether famous myths or folk tales and rumors are possible. Like, we had our staff retreat last week, and there were like three different times something would come up and not be like, Oh, yeah, that was a Mythbusters episode. This is, you know, whatever. Because one of them that I always hear all the time is, oh, they're like a, they're like a bull in the china shop. That phrase, bull in the china shop. Like they're just going to run everything over and just knock everything down. Like if you know who, who um, Aaron Atchison is, that's a bull in the china shop. That's kind of the thing, right? But in the Mythbusters episode, they put, you know, some little, you know, stands, you know, shelves in a, in a cow pen, put some china up there and let some bulls run wild and they didn't actually knock anything down, but whatever, it's, there's some cool stuff. And, and so I love the show, my family, we, we watched the show, uh, some of the myths that they tested were crazy, like the bull in the china shop, can somebody escape from Alcatraz with like some jackets, whatever it was, can you save a computer hard drive by freezing it? Is a police badge bulletproof? Can an airplane toilet create enough suction to like suck somebody out? Those kinds of things. That's the really 
things that you just need to know, right? No, whatever. No matter the subject, the guys and this and couple girls, they would take an extraordinary myth and they would put it to the test with some ordinary experiments to find out the truth is sometimes closer than we think. And when it comes to the getting to know God, we need to become mythbusters in a sense. I'm not saying that he's a myth, but I'm saying merely wondering about an extraordinary God, we need to kind of dig in and start getting to know the God in your ordinary life. And because sometimes God is less than our expectation. That's because our expectations, like many of these myths, they're, they're really faulty. But as we change our expectations, we grow, we mature, become more like Christ, we will meet God in the ordinary. And we'll also discover more and more ways that God is more extraordinary than we imagined. And in the end, we will know God better and we'll realize that He is truly closer than we think. Because God is a, God, is, he's a lot of things, but He's not exactly what we expect. We expect a hero to conquer our enemies, but we find a peacemaker who reaches out to our enemies. We expect someone who, who joins established religion, but we find someone who kind of challenges it. We expect someone who uses power and wealth to impress, but we find a, a friend to the oppressed. We expect a God who's far off and distant and unattainable, but we find a God who's closer than we think. You know, we expect judgment, but we find grace. I don't know. That's good. I don't know if you guys need to hear, I need to hear that. We expect judgment. We, found, we find grace in who God is. We expect extraordinary, but we, we find ordinary. And we, as we see who God is, we become thankful that God is less than our expectation because he's so much bigger than anything we could ever dream up or imagine. I'm going to pray, and then uh, you guys will spend a few minutes um, if you need to, leaders you need to add anything else to this, you guys can add it. And then spend a few moments praying for each other in the group. And then we'll be done. God, we thank you that you are ordinary. That you, you don't meet our expectations. That you're not who we want you to be. We try to fit you into a box. God, you're so much bigger than that. And we thank you for that. And we pray that you're not... Um, Something that we can fully grasp, someone that we can fully understand, because that would be so small if we could. God, but we just, we're grateful that you are so much bigger than that. I think for these students that are here tonight, I pray you bless them. I pray they continue just to kind of work through these things, these questions, these verses, they get home and just um, continue just to, to grow closer to you through this, this lesson through tonight. Pray for this time. Thank you for these kids. May they just be blessed as they leave. In the name I pray. Amen. I'll just spend a few moments just um, praying for each other real quick.